This is a special edition of As the Actress Said to the Critic because we've got our first guest. Dun, dun, dun. So exciting. <laughs> um, so Rosalie Craig has come to join us to talk about musicals. Hello, Rosalie. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> did um, How did you get into musicals? How did you start? Because um, I think of you, I mean, possibly you're an actress, but you have done a lot of musicals, so... I've done a lot of musicals and it was never, I don't think it was ever a sort of a planned thing. In fact, it was, a, I think probably when I was really, really, really young, I watched Annie on repeat um, and used to pretend to be ill um, <laughs> off school and just then watch Annie over and over again, um, which was amazing coming full circle um, to be around Bernadette Peters recently because for me, oh, she yeah, was like, as a kid, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Um, so that was nice. That was like, oh my God. I, I did tell her and felt embarrassed. What's the big number that she sings with um, Tim Curry and... Um... Easy Street. Oh, yes. Yeah. Also, she hasn't changed remotely. No. Sorry, so I know I'm going say, off subject no, no, now. We ought to change, say why you've been around Bernadette Peters because um, you were part of the Sondheim Gala. Um, of um to raise funds for his foundation recently. And Bernadette Peters was also part of it, which must have been amazing to meet such a sort of legendary... She is a legend. I tell you, the the best part of that gala for me, apart from hearing Sondheim's music played by that amazing orchestra and obviously seeing Judi Dench and Judy McKenzie and Bernadette Peters, was the fact that we had a rehearsal for Broadway Baby and um, and I had no idea that Bernie, I can't really call her Bernie Bernadette, um, but she Bernie. doesn't really like Bernie either, I don't know why I'm saying that. Um, yeah, she walked in with Julia and um, I thought, I, I, just, I just don't know what to do because there she is. And I don't really get starstruck, but I really did, by definitely by those two. And she just walked over and, just, and she just held my hand and went, hi, I'm Bernadette. And I was like... I know. <laughs> and then we just had such a glorious day together. And I thought, well, that's fine. If I've got nothing else to take from this, it's that. You know, so that was gorgeous. It's yeah. wonderful. And Nancy, have you ever been in a musical? No. No. I mean, I did a couple at university, but um, no. I went up for one once and uh, I had to make a very embarrassing call to my agent because they... Um, rang and said, you know, can you can you sing and dance? I said, well, you know, I've got an okay voice. It's a sort of, it's a character voice. And uh, I'm, I'd, I'd love to have a go, but there's absolutely no way on God's earth I can dance. It's just awful. Um, and minutes of uh, anybody's life that I had to watch it that they would never get back. And um, and uh, my agent said, oh, okay, we'll pass that on. And then I got a call from the casting director saying, so excited that you can sing and dance. And I was like, no! <laughs> that's not what I said at all please 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 and um and uh yeah so but I did I had a lovely um time attempting to be in a musical but never have I have a strong sense in my last life I could dance yeah. but that it hasn't translated yeah I feel one. I feel I had a, a, a some moment in my life I could sing and dance and certainly I spent my childhood singing the whole of um the gondoliers from end to end accompanied by my very <laughs> patient father but at some point as I grew up I just seemed to lose the ability both to sing and dance to the point where I do remember a terrible family Christmas where my dad who was quite good musically and my brother who got a nice voice asked my mother and I to stop singing at the piano <laughs> It was such a terrible sound coming out. But I have continued to love musicals and love them in the theatre. And I'm fascinated at the moment that there seems to be a, um, a sort of moment, a, 
going on where people are looking again at the um, classic musicals and talking about doing them in new ways mm. and doing them for a different generation, which is terrific because you don't want these kind of great shows not to be seen through different eyes. Mm. Um, and there was a carousel at uh, um, Regent's Park Open Air, which kind of dealt very directly with the fact that one of its leading characters is violent towards women. There's coming up South Pacific, which is going to, uh, which has addressed um, Nellie's racism. And um, uh, there's been Oklahoma at the Young Vic this week, which is completely different. Um, look at a show without changing a word but most importantly of all given our guest um <laughs> Stephen Sondheim's company was rethought reconfigured um and starred Rosie and under Marion Elliott's direction changing the gender of Bobby which um was a kind of an extraordinary thing and I wondered uh, Rosie how did it come about how did you sort of get involved in it well it was quite um interesting because I'd done a production of Company at Sheffield Crucible with Dan Evans and um, we'd done it, I mean, millions of years ago and I played one of the girlfriends so when Marianne, um, who I'd done The Light Princess with already came up to me, we were in the national queue in the canteen and I was heavily pregnant and she said um, I need to talk to you and I was like, oh god <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and she you know, we'd often talk about things that she might be doing in the future and she said, oh, I'd love to pick your brains about company. And so we sat down and we'd talk about it for hours. And then she's, she just wanted to sort of understand what I thought, it, what I thought it was about. Um, and then eventually I said, oh, well, are you going to do it? And she said, yeah, I'm thinking of actually switching Bobby into a woman. And then we'd talk a bit more. And then quite a few weeks went by and then we'd talk about it. And then she, I just said, wow, well, who are you going to? get to do that part because that is going to be really it's really exciting I'd go home and I'd sort of scan the script my old script and then send her ideas and then she eventually said well I'm going to get you to do it of course <laughs> if you'll do it and I was like oh my god it's so exciting it, it really was but then I guess you know it wasn't a done deal we had to get Stephen to say yes and he originally said absolutely not you know oh wow really I yeah. yeah did he say why um well, I think it was just such a special piece for him and it really worked and uh when it was originally done and but I think you know Marianne and I felt very strongly we spent a whole day in the musical director's flat working through the numbers and the script and she played every part and I played Bobby and we sent him recordings of me singing the songs I mean it's not the first time we've heard like some of the Bobby's songs sung by a woman but um I think also he felt that he wasn't uh it wasn't he felt like he wouldn't be able to understand what a generation could get out of the reworking of it because he said I don't know what it is to be 35 now or as a yeah. woman and um he sat down we did a workshop we felt very strongly that we should do a workshop that he should see and um he sat down and watched it with a group of 35 year olds and they just said well in that not specifically 35 but yeah, <laughs> yeah you can only come if you're 35 um and he just said 
yeah, let's do it. You know, it's and Marianne, he just wanted her to do any of his anything. Yeah, he'd always liked her direction, hadn't he? Yeah. He'd followed her and, and sent her um, sort of letters of encouragement. I, I thought it was so wonderful. It was one of the very first Sondheim shows I ever really fell in love with. I mean, I adore Sondheim. And um, I fell in love with it through the recording, through the cast recording. So because I, I didn't see it for a long, long time. And what um, amazed me about it was that... Um, and then I saw Adrian Lester's um, Donmar Warehouse, which also was wonderful. Mm. And what amazed me about your version was that it just seemed natural, actually. It didn't seem, I didn't, it didn't worry me at all. It just felt right. in completely safe hands and it was absolutely just the same show, but different and, and just seemed to fit like a, a glove, really. I thought it was historical. You, you saw it, didn't you? Yeah, I loved it. And I think also... You know, it's a it's a language that of you know the empowered um, single woman. Mm. It, you know, post Sex and the City yeah. is something that we're we're very accepting of. We accept that women won't necessarily be monogamous. We accept that you know that people date. We accept that you know we're all searching, but you you know there may be more than one uh, person that we're meant to be with. This is all part of mm. a sort of modern um, vernacular, modern language that. Perhaps when Sondheim wrote it, it just it wasn't, you know, you married for life and you married young and and that's that's not what we necessarily what a younger generation expect of yeah, themselves, made, for themselves. It now. made complete sense of that central character's hesitation and, yeah. and, you know, inability to decide and that sense of reaching a crisis yeah. because she was at a time of her life when a biological clock was ticking. And, and it, it was extraordinary how once you saw it, you couldn't believe nobody had done it before. You I know. know. Yeah. Uh, and that's what it felt like when we did it, especially when they, uh, Marianne and um, the choreographer decided to reinstate a number called TikTok, which is normally taken out of the show and oh, made really? it about fertility and the, the biological clock ticking and what was amazing though as well for Stephen is that I think when it was originally done there was always questions around Bobby being gay and was it him and I think it just took all of that out of it and actually got down to the heart of what he felt it was about which was about people not being monogamous or yeah, yeah. or questioning whether we should be married or is that is that really what we want as humans to be with one person or why do we have to have children why do we have to, and then look at, sort of interrogating other people's lives and opening the door and and looking in on other people's relationships and thinking Christ if that's what it is I don't want Ed to be a part of any of it you know yeah and they're all such different shapes and sizes aren't they but I'd, I'd never seen so it before you I seeing see. you play Bobby was the first time I've ever seen anybody okay. play Bobby and I can't imagine a it guy a playing it now yeah. it was then quite interesting to um, see Adam Driver sing oh, uh, yes. Being Alive at the End of the Marriage Story. Oh, I yes, no, I haven't seen and I've seen him do it, yeah. It's incredibly moving because because of the lyrics and because you know what he's been through. But it, what, there was a sort of, um, you know, hesitation for me, thinking, well, that's odd. Mm. Which is, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Which is a testament to you and testament to how well it fits in a in a female body as a part. And I... And it is a, it's, it's, but a testament to the musical that it can take that leap through time. I mean, I, yeah, I tend to feel that one of the um, signs of the sort of absolute greatness of Sondheim is how um, adaptable so many of the musicals are because yeah. they are, whatever their specific subject, they do sort of reach so deeply into, um, 
eternal human feelings, but also kind of quite specific things about loneliness and the difficulties of modern living and relationships. I think, you know, he's probably as good on as anybody. If you look at all of the the relationships portrayed in Follies and mm. A Little Night Music and Into the Woods, which is about the fears of growing up, yeah. he, he those, those themes are so deeply examined and in all kinds of different ways. And David Benedict in the, in the programme for the the Sondheim Gala, which you were part of, had wrote this really kind of um, wonderful essay, I thought, where he said that um, most people have to wait for their obituaries to be reassessed to know what people thought of them. And there is this extraordinary sort of turnaround in the middle of Sondheim's career. So when I first started watching Sondheim musicals, it was like a cult. You know, you you kind of ended up in Leicester and, mm. and, and Manchester and all kinds of places because some small group, Cheltenham ones, some small group were putting on a Sondheim show. Yeah. And then um, Julia McKenzie, who you perform with, did side by side with Sondheim and made him much more sort of uh, approachable and that got to the West End. And then gradually people started to put on the shows and suddenly people realised, I, I don't really know why, he suddenly stopped being difficult and people understood that he was kind of completely accessible. You just had to go with him mm. and listen to the words. And I think that is the wonderful thing. So he must have had a kind of second half of his career where people had stopped describing him as difficult and rediscovered him as just kind of this great writer of musicals in the old tradition. I mean, did you talk to him at all? I mean, it must have been amazing to work with him. It was. I mean, we didn't have access to him in rehearsals because obviously he was of an age and he didn't want to just travel and sit in rehearsals all day. I mean, why would he? But he, I mean, he'd see everything that we were doing all the time. But I suppose it it was it was it was fascinating to be around him. I mean, even when we were just recording the cast album or in previews and um, he was so generous. I just, what I'll take from him is that he was so generous and he was so kind to me. And uh, I know that's not always the case with, um, with him and also with something quite difficult as a reimagining something you've written in a completely new and, 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 in a different for, form. Um, what kind of notes would he give you? I mean, did did you, did you have that kind of where he would say, "Have you thought about this?" Or it wouldn't it wouldn't be so much as that. It would be it would actually be sort of musical notes. Or um, he was very, of course, he was. It was his music, but there was there's a reason why his note lengths are the length they are, and it's um, reminded me very much of doing something like London Road, where it was. You know, we had to do the Adam Cork's note lengths because that is what the verbatim was of the text. Yeah, yeah. And it was, Sondheim was the same. He'd written that note in that place for a reason. And of course, he never minds. He doesn't care about keys or if you take it up or down. But he cares about the note lengths. He cares about um, a word or a pronunciation yeah. of a word. When we were doing the album, he would just come through on the cans and say, I want you to sing it like this. Or, yeah. In fact, my performance on the album is quite... It's not identical to what I did on stage because we changed it when we were recording it. Mm. And we only had like three sessions to record wow. it because we were doing it on a Sunday when we we're doing the show and it's exhausting singing a musical. So you're like, you've got this amount of time when your voice is not going to die from uh, tiredness. But I count, I count myself extremely lucky to have had 
that moment in the sun with him, really. Yeah. I, I really do. You know, I mean, it's interesting as well that when, when writers or directors are so specific about things like pauses and length, even in a play, yeah. you know, and I think there's always a moment as an actor where you... You, you're struggling. You think, oh, God, how, how is this ever going to be in my muscles? How is this ever? And then suddenly it sort of clicks and you sort of think, oh, OK. I mean, I, I recently did a Pinter and it's the same thing. And, and it's the first time I've ever done it. But then you talk to actors who've done endless Pinter and they go, no, 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 it's really, really important. The difference between a full stop, a comma, a pause, a, you know, whatever. He has a language. And I think yeah, it, it sounds very similar it. that yeah. you just, that there'll be a moment where you fully, fully understand and he's in your muscles and then... And you and you sort of and you get it. Yeah, and it informs your performance yeah. as well. And, and actually, I found it very much. And I've said this before many a time about doing that part for him. I've done quite a few sometimes, but obviously not on that scale. Although I did love playing the beggar woman. I was like really like random that I played. That I was like <laughs> it was really great. Um, I didn't see myself. In Sweeney Todd. Sorry. In Sweeney Todd. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that piece. My God. But this is the thing as well. Doing that gala, I was like, oh, look at all the parts still there to yeah. play. It was yeah. like. Oh, Oh, yes. <laughs> I can't wait to get older, you know, <laughs> clawing back the ears. Is that, yeah, his his music would take on, and his uh, lyric, the lyrics, the meaning of the songs would be changed by a note length or certainly like it in a play when you, uh, when it's in your skin and yeah, yeah. the pauses are there for a reason. But he, it's, it, I know he's called the Shakespeare of musicals, but I do think it is quite similar to performing Shakespeare because with my experience of doing any Shakespeare, is that um, it's all there for you. Yeah. yeah. He gives you it. It's, it's a gift. So if you don't fight against it, it opens up. And yeah. every night I'd, I'd perform Being Alive or Marry Me a Little and there was something to learn and there was something to go, yeah. oh, my God. So it was never... Like, a lot of musicals are quite can be quite monotonous because you're set in a rhythm with, a, with an orchestra and it's you're doing the same thing you can't even if you try and sort of bend the orchestra yeah, sometimes yeah. they don't move with you um but that's uh that was what was joyous it was yeah. just like an oyster with a pearl in yeah, yeah. I think there's a there's a portrayal of him in Tick Tick Boom that we've talked about uh, and that the thing that is taken from that story is his support of young composers and his complete generosity, but also love of what he does. And then I saw him recently, there was footage of him, I think very, very, um, just rather just before he passed away. So he was already 90 um, in the making of... uh, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story re- remake of West Side Story and it had lots of footage of of them um, or rather photographs stills of of them all sat around composing the first West Side Story yeah. but the 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 light in his eyes even sort of moments before he was no longer here you know was still it's still incredibly useful that joy of creating the generosity uh, of being in a team creating work and and I think that uh, that is always in his work and you see the way that he creates ensembles mm. with his characters and any Sondheim I've ever seen there's a huge generosity and um collective joy you know in in the entire thing moving forward is a collective effort yeah. which I I don't think is in every 
style of musical, really. I mean, it's always a great sort of collective force of energy, yeah. but there is something very particular about There is something about work. the density of what he writes, I think. So I met him once, and it, again, it's interesting because you'd, I was terrified. I mean, so we were doing an on-stage event at the National Theatre a long time ago when there was the revival, um, actually maybe the first time in London, of Sunday in the Park with George, um, with Daniel Evans again and Maria. And... Um, Oh, no. Jenna. Um, with Jenna. Jenna. Sorry, Daniel. So it was the revival. Yeah. And um, Jenna Russell. And I was terrified with meeting Suntown because, you know, like you should never really meet your idols. And he, <laughs> no. he was a complete idol and he'd carry me through a long period of my life where I just listened to, to the musicals endlessly. And, and again, he was, he was very warm, but he was very precise mm. and That's very exactly. rigorous, you know, kind of. Um, he was he wasn't easy to interview because the, the rigor was there. But right. what you say about the kind of love of that and the the kind of complexity of the composition of um, Sunday in the Park and mm. all the things he was trying to say about creativity and beauty and the pressures that puts on relationships, it was all the, the kind of richness is in his thinking was so obvious, you know, it was just riveting to listen to him talking about it. And I think that that is true. With the gender switching, what in company, what pressures did that put on you? I mean, were the sort of hurdles that you fell over? I think the biggest hurdle that we actually faced were things like the friendship between... Bobby and Jamie and what to do with that rather than actual character things like you say it just seemed to click and I remember that from very early on when we when we were in um, Joel Fram's flat in London every time we turned a page and said it as a female said said Bobby's lines it was all three of us were like school like little kids going oh my god it works I hope he he likes it you know I was thinking oh my god it really 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 works but it was um there's lots of people that think that maybe Jamie should have been Amy still and we should have explored it being sort of we did do that in an original workshop so just so Jamie is the not getting married today yeah yeah and yeah which was uh, Jonathan Bailey wasn't it? that's right yeah Johnny Bailey yeah I felt in terms of pressure it's really interesting because I really did feel like we were making a new piece and I'm very at home making new pieces of music, new musicals or new plays or I feel like that's where I fit best if we fit anywhere in an industry. But um, so I felt responsible for women, I have to say, and I didn't know how important it was until I would go to the stage door or people would write to me and say, thank God someone's finally talking from a place of honesty about women and how we feel about fertility, marriage. It felt very important in that way. It's interesting, isn't it? Were you, because there was a certain amount of resistance, I think, in the run-up to company. And, um, you know, all the sort of, a lot of Sondheim diehards were kind of worried about the changes and were worried that it was part of a, I suppose, a trend of, of, of trying to increase the number of roles available for women, which... Uh, it probably wasn't the Sondheim diehards that were worried about that. It was probably more the press in general. There's this kind of slightly weird thing, I think, as a woman about there's a nervousness about gender reversal and this idea that, you know, women can take on all parts. Um, Were you worried about the reception for it at all? It wasn't 
I suppose in terms of changing it, felt that we were bringing a sort of period piece and modernising it rather than it being about um, more parts for women. It felt like this was a a piece that was not really going to get performed because... Do we did we really want to see a man struggling in the sixties about how many women he'd slept with? And I don't think it was very. It didn't feel very current anymore. So it felt re- more that we were um, sort of trying to make this brilliant, brilliant piece of theatre relevant again. So that I think that was my focus rather than um, it being about more roles for women. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah that is it will be really interesting next time it's on with yeah. a man again oh, because yeah. because that will be another reassessment Isn't and there, Antonio Antonio Banderas doing it in it, I think a friend of mine's filming in Barcelona sent me a picture going oh my god and he came to see it and he was backstage oh, talking well, to me about make a film of it uh, but now he's doing it on stage oh on stage yeah. oh I didn't know that yeah. If you're going to go to Barcelona. Ah. Well, might all, might all have to book a flight. <laughs> yeah. Interesting to see it. You used to go to Leicester to watch it. Why not Barcelona? Yeah. Oh, better. It's rather better. Um, it is interesting. So um, I think the other, you know, kind of crucial thing about Sondheim is that he was so much the heir of Rodgers and Hammerstein and so consciously placed himself in that position and obviously was helped by Hammerstein and by his influence and kind of, you know, living next door to him, growing up with yeah. him. But that idea of being in, in the tradition of Rogers and Hammerstein, we've, um, both Nancy and I have had an interesting week this week because we've been to see Oklahoma, the young Vic. Yeah. Um, which is a production that I saw in New York, in fact, first. Oh, time right. I, I didn't realise. Okay. Yeah, I've seen it once before. Um, and which, um, again, does exactly what you're talking about, Rosie, of saying that um, if you if you put on Oklahoma now, can you do it in just the kind of absolute um, traditional way of um, a cowboy striding through a field and everybody slapping their thighs yes. and singing happily about beautiful mornings? And the answer that Daniel Fish, director, has come up with is no, you can't do it quite that way, or at least he didn't want to do it that way. And he has done a version of it that is much more critical of a community of what it takes to be a community so you still get all the great songs you still get all the love stories you still get all the humor but it also asks I think um what um would it what it would have been like to be in a pioneer community what being a community is like Mm. and makes it both old and modern did you like it Nancy did you I loved it but I think what uh I took from it was Again, this idea of of looking at a script and stripping it right, right, right back to the bare bones, looking at the politics of it, looking at what's required of it musically. What I loved was was the setup that you know it's all um, the whole stage is sort of stripped back literally to raw wood, which helps again with the noise and um, and then putting the musicians on stage. And it was a celebration of every single element of that. But I, I, I mean, I always love it when live musicians are on stage yeah. in any capacity. But the fact that they're in the huge unapologetic lighting, which is so in your face that you can see every single sort of fingers squashing onto a string for every single note that belts out and yeah, and, and I, an amazing sort of new bluegrass sort of oh setting God, it was complete the same it was beautiful score, but re-orchestrated but that rawness it reminded me of the the martin crimp cyrano that, that again taking it right back and and there's nothing missing in terms of performers commitment to the work 
even though you might restrict their movement, you might restrict the blocking, you're, you've definitely restricted set, you've definitely restricted costume changes. So actually, you, 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 there's so much attention to every single word, every single note, every single nuance and key change, that it it's actually ends up being an extraordinary celebration. And, and then within that that real sort of spotlight and uh, um, microscopic attention to let's look at the politics of this and see how it fits in a modern setting. And if we're not going to change it, let's call them up on it, yeah. which this production does. And and, um, and it also looks at character very hard, which I, it brings it again with with the company that... it's it, to it, see it. Um, yeah, it is worth seeing. And um, he's been doing it... Um, on and off since 2007, he did it. Daniel Fish did it originally as a student production at Bard. And um, the, one of the things he did was that the character of Judd Fry, which is normally this kind of threatening, mm. uh, sort of threatening thug, really, he's a he, figure, um, it suggests instead that um, he might be a troubled outsider, that he might really just be, you know, a muddled youth, that he might actually be possibly somebody that... Laurie could fall in love with if um, circumstances were different. Wow. And it's played by um, Patrick Vale, who has been playing it on and off since he was a student. Oh, really? And, um, has, yeah, so it's come in and was out. Was he in the his, New York production as well then? He was in the New York wow. production. He's gone right through with it. And um, it, he's just astonishing the kind of depth that he so, he brings to this kind of um, character who who just longs to be accepted and in the end is 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 pushed out and it's such a kind of radical but very simple thing it's not like rewriting anything it's just saying what is who is this man yeah and I find that profoundly moving I find it even more moving because the first time I saw it I thought oh you know stripped out and set amazing dance blah and then the second time I saw it I just thought the characters were so yeah thoroughly but I think it's what's interesting though is that all this re-examining is about spectrum in the end isn't it because what we're saying is you know it's no longer fits into this modern sort of storytelling that you have man woman bad good you know that there is nuance there are there's more understanding and acceptance of mental health issues and that people you know if people were ostracized 50 years ago because they had mental health issues or special educational needs or whatever now hopefully we live in a world where we say hang on no this this has a name and this has a way of, um, it has a language around it that we can learn and understand and bring you further into the community and give you a role and that neurodiversity, you know, suddenly has a place in business. So you put, you put storytelling into that mix and then, and then why then is it a, is it a problem to then have women playing parts of traditionally played by men? Because actually it's not about man, woman, it's about energy perspective <laughs> yeah and and about alpha energy but it's also been hard always been hard for musicals and and that's why it's interesting Rosalie that you I mean you've done so many musicals that there's a sense somehow which wasn't ever true with sometime I think this was one of his his kind of great um gifts to musical theater that he made them um he absolutely asserted their right to be sort of psychologically mm. truthful and uh rich in terms of storytelling but have you and you have done i mean you mentioned that you've done london road which is a musical brilliant um and with yeah choice. have you do you feel as a form the musical has got this capacity to be um 
sort of play part around of, with, yeah, play yeah. Great, yeah, play around with these ideas and be absolutely central to theatre and not just seen as sort of something slightly off on the side that, you know, you might go to on a good day, you know, because you want a nice night out or that's something. That's a really... Yeah, I know, because it's seen as a form of complete escapism, escapism, and I do think there's a home for that and a place for that. I've certainly... I'm... Uh, I, I'm somebody who does musicals who can't go and watch the big ones. Like, I've never seen Wicked or um, I only went to see Les Mis because uh, my husband was in it many moons ago. Um, so I do have... Uh, my interest in musicals is from... Uh, I don't quite know how to phrase it, but from a... I like different musicals. So your your description of Oklahoma is like, oh my God, I have to see this yeah. because essentially those conversations which you're suggesting about mental health were written into the piece. It's just taken somebody else to see it, to see it in a different yeah. way. And and maybe we weren't ready to have those conversations yeah, yeah. when Oklahoma was first put on, but, it, but somebody with an issue was written into the piece, but just took somebody else to have a different... But it's interesting because we we assume that musicals, by their very sort of size definition. and noise and definition, are joyous and it's all yeah. going to be happy and we go yeah. because we want to be happy. But then you look at things like Dear Evan Hansen and uh, Jamie and all those stuff and it's been an extraordinary medium to put different sorts of stories out there and to um, give people a voice. Yeah. And actually things like, I remember seeing Parade at the Donmark, oh, yeah. which I thought, how can that be in a musical but actually it was extraordinary it was extraordinary because th there's a discomfort when somebody's misrepresentation is is sung you know there's a hugeness to it that actually you know provides an extraordinary fury and energy to to the retelling of of a, of a story that actually happened you know it's a true story i think that's what we found with london road though is that once you as soon as you have a soundtrack something or a backdrop of music we're instantly engaged in a different way so your very dna behaves differently and you start listening more or being emotionally led by that piece of music whether it's yeah. a play with music you know in the background or... yeah 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 so london road was the story of the prostitutes who were murdered on london road in ipswich isn't yeah. it and an entire and um yeah it was extraordinary and it seems such a sort of bold idea that you would make that musical, musical rather yeah. than play and I think that's what fascinated me about it because originally when I was auditioning for it and it was 2000 and oh my goodness don't even <laughs> 2000 <laughs> something uh, <laughs> something I don't know why I keep talking about years but it's not important um I thought what the hell is this and I think all of us even after the final run through in the rehearsal room at the national just went no we're going to go, excuse me, we're going to go to our deaths. You know, this is it. This oh, is wow. it. You yeah. know, um, and uh, because it was such a different form of doing something and the subject matter. But Alecky and Adam took such care of that. And it was a beautiful moment in the National Theatre Studio where they they worked together. And then this was bought, this was the, the product of those two meeting and, and finding a different language in a musical. Who was the composer? It's Alecky. Alec Blind, Adam Cork. Adam Cork. Um, yeah. I just, he can do no wrong in my eyes. It is that thing about musicals. I think why I always liked them is that, um, you know, people, well, people who write them always say, uh, and have said to me when I've interviewed them, that, you know, the song comes out under pressure. So you have dialogue until the song, you know, when the emotion is, is so high. Um, but what I do think is brilliant about them is that, that they are so full of feeling. 
And that one sort of directors take them as something other. I mean, so possibly I think that when I was growing up, I saw an awful lot of shows that were just were just jolly and they were lovely because I love the tap dancing, you know, the fun and the mistakes on a boat and everybody falling in love and falling back out of love. But as I I do think those big shows, the Rogers and Hammerstein and so on um, and so on time, the kind of. I keep coming out the same word, but it is a kind of density that they offer that's unlike anything else in in theatre, really. They're, they're, they're joyous to do when they're just for show. I can't say I've done... I, don't, I can't think of one that I've done that's just sort of... Razzle-dazzle. Yeah, razzle-dazzle. Yeah, I was going to say tits and teeth, uh, yeah. Mind you, Les Mis is full of death and yeah. awfulness. I yeah. suppose the numbers are just so large, you've, you you just well, forget. Well, Les is a fantastic show. And Phantom, actually. I mean, yeah. Phantom of the Opera um, is not entirely to my taste, but it is an amazing show. Yeah. And that, again, I mean, at another level, you could say it's all about disfigurement and yeah. outsider-ishness yeah, yeah, and yeah. societal expectations. And so underneath all the razzle-dazzle is that kind of... And I think that... I think people... Rec- respond almost subconsciously to those um, themes. Wicked, you know, it's yes, about the girl who doesn't fit in. It's... That's right. But, but also, I, go on, you go. No. no. I was <laughs> going to say that, you know, there's things about London Road, which which remind me of Mozart as well in the end, that the idea of you having six people all telling their story at exactly the same time. Um, and then you create this sort of aria of, of is it can you say aria of there's lots of people singing at the same time with more than one or does it belong to one person mm, chorus i think Cor- is it a chorus? chorus okay a choral so number. A, cor- a chorus of <laughs> six characters singing in search of an author yeah <laughs> 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 the, the, um all singing at the same time but singing their version of events that together see, make yeah. the piece and that that's what london road reminded me of and mm. and i think it's it's just an, you know, extraordinary thing that music can do that words on their own can also do, but it's very, very different. Mm. You can't have six people necessarily talking at the same time, but with music, the fact that you you could feed into each other and create something either discordant or harmonious, but it but that onslaught of information works because everybody's doing it simultaneously yeah. mm. is 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 a thing that Mozart. Yeah. Did. And um, it's, yeah, it's an access point to things as well. It's that, it, uh, yeah, I do think that's. And as we sit and, and talk, it occurs to me how much of what's going on in musical theatre now in terms of reassessing shows is about um, reassessing the traditional attitudes to women, which is, it, uh, it uh, hadn't really occurred to me until we sat talking that even um, in the Oklahoma, Laurie, who has the sort of choice between the two men um is usually sort of this virginal mm. kind of gingham smiley girl and they've um Anita Galukas and the director have really looked at that and made her a much more um conflicted um character with real agency I think yeah. so you know it's a proper choice that faces her and when I interviewed um Anushka she said that it was it's like she's choosing between being two different people Yes. She can go one way yeah. or she can go another. And that, again, is a kind it's of a new c- company choice. It, yeah, I mean. it, it is, but it's it's sort of... Um, it's not a new way of thinking, is it? But it's just, an, it's just interesting that that is now put in a musical, on stage in a musical, because, like you say, a lot, a lot of 
people going to see musicals are going because they want to have a big spectacle, a big chandelier fall down or a barricade or, um, I don't know, hairspray, something to completely uh, escape, just lose themselves. And sometimes if I do go and see a big show, I think, I find it really difficult to watch those big shows because they're just not what I enjoy interrogating in. It's not it's not an art form that I love. You know, I yeah. love escapism and yeah. big loud music, but I, I feel like when I watch a big show, I'm like, well, where, where's the jeopardy? Or like, why why can't you sing sing that? That that needs more. That needs something else in, lyrically. Or yes. uh, I find it really difficult to sit through them because I think musicals are there to in- interrogate difficult subjects, and I think they have an enormous importance within the language of theatre and just from listening to you talk about Oklahoma alone, just yeah. when I saw the Trevor Nunn version, was it, no, Richard Eyre, Trevor Nunn? Trevor Nunn with, with Hugh Jackman, yeah. Hugh Jackman, yeah. Josephine Gabriel, yeah. we all saw him in that, didn't yeah. we? And, and I was at drama school and I was thinking, my God, this is absolutely astonishing. Yeah. And I was talking to Josephine at the gala just saying, you know, I just absolutely loved you in that, but it just feels of a time. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to see that version anymore but obviously this is why this one exists was i talking to you the other day about uh that every story has a patriarch a matriarch uh a fool and a something else no you weren't and it sounds really interesting it was so it was you can now say this. forgive me whoever i had this conversation with that i have a menopausal <laughs> brain and i can't remember <laughs> but it was it was interesting that that every story has um four parts and I think it was the clown and the fool or the something and the fool and and but it but that you know in our current uh you know open uh multi-conversational atmosphere of theatre making and storytelling that you don't have to have a man playing the patriarch and it it doesn't necessarily have to be even one person being the matriarch Mm. it could be a community and that you have the fool and you have the whatever and I think that um you lost my train of thought. Oh no, it was so good. Was like, oh, I know. Hang on, hang on. Basically, that um, you know, that in terms of uh, switching gender, that it doesn't necessarily. It isn't as simple as this person should be um, a man or a woman. Now that we're in our modern age, it's more that the energy in this story can be played by this person or that person, or you know. Um, different people, uh, people of different colour, people of different um, gender, you know, and gender fluidity within all of that, and and that it is, it's more about um, what that character represents in that community and what that voice is and how it affects the story. That it that it shouldn't be as simple as a yeah. black and white decision, yeah. even if it's for the purposes of positive discrimination, because there aren't enough parts for women, or there aren't enough parts for women of a certain age. You know, yeah, okay, all of those conversations are essential, and we all know how we feel about it. But actually, the 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 role itself. Let's examine the role itself and its part in that story, and 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 you know, uh, art reflecting life, and and the way that the the world has changed yeah. and so that's all we're asking yeah. and that's all we're having a conversation about and it isn't it, it isn't as simple as gender reversal it, it's far more complex and far more important I wholeheartedly agree but it is it is about that isn't it? it's about an energy behind a character or a part of a community rather yeah. than it being gender specific race specific it's about 
the what conversation does this character do to this story yeah, at exactly. this time? It's going to be fascinating moving forward, isn't it, to see what museum pieces get turned around yeah. in musicals otherwise, but also who's who, who the conversation's about and who is at the centre of them. It's almost as if you can't even predict it because things are moving so quickly, aren't they, yeah. in terms of how we relate to ourselves and who we are and what what we see ourselves as. So they're, they're, just to, to wind things up, the... Um... The next, you know, old-fashioned musical that's about to get a new look is um, My Fair Lady, which they're bringing to the Coliseum and directed by Bartlett Shaw with not only an ending that more accurately reflects Shaw than it reflects Lerner and Lowe, but also with the first, I think, Eliza of Colour, Black Eliza. And I mean, I think, and that's huge and also completely right. You know, it feels... Why hasn't that been... Yeah. And, and and it will make, I, I, I can't wait to see that because I do think that's, you know, again, just a way of making a wonderful show with kind of Amazing great frocks, show. great songs and everything. Yeah. But also with an emotional truthfulness about yeah. a woman who wants to get on and who has to ask a kind of very difficult man to help her. Yeah. I think that that's going to be revelatory. It, so. it really is. And the conversation around the fact that she is an outsider because of her race was, is only going to make that even more multi-layered. But going back to what you were saying at the beginning about Sundam and humanity, it really is a conversation about the fact that his work is just full of that. And there's a different Sundam for every season of your life, every version of yourself, every chapter. and um, And I think that's the reason that he's so other because he writes humanity he yeah, writes yeah. what we think and feel and i think a lot of musicals try and put a bow on it and he doesn't he just goes that's what it is yeah um yeah. i know i'm very excited i've got friends working on my fair age and they're saying they're having the time of their life oh really so yeah. Yeah. So oh, that's glorious. all three of us will go and see that and bring yes. it back to another yes. podcast in the future but for now I think that's uh, it's been really really nice we didn't you. actually start properly though, didn't we didn't even say welcome to episode four of as the actors said to, to the critic with our special guest Rosalie Craig <laughs> uh, and that's goodbye from us <laughs> it's goodbye from us but Rosalie Craig thank you so much thank, for thank you for coming it's been brilliant. so nice to thanks. talk to you thank so you nice. thanks